Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations. Their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism, and strive to heal all with skill and trust. In this episode, the Medical Director of ACS Trauma Quality Programs, Dr. Avery Nathans, talks with two of his trauma colleagues, Drs. Anne Rizzo and Bryce Robinson, about the recent successful Trauma Quality Improvement Program meeting in Louisville, Kentucky. In addition to the key insights and lessons learned from TQIP, they also discuss a new guidance document on traumatic brain injury and what to expect from the ACS Trauma Programs in 2024. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program. It is my pleasure to uh, be here today speaking about the TQIP conference with Dr. Ann Rizzo and Dr. Bryce Robinson. And uh, why don't I have our guests uh, introduce themselves. Uh, Dr. Rizzo, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and then Dr. Robinson. Well, thank you, Dr. Nathans. So I like to consider myself a friendly neighborhood trauma surgeon. Uh, but this last year, I was integrally involved with planning the TQIP conference and the chair of the quality pillar. Um, at home, I am a trauma surgeon at Guthrie Clinic, where we have three trauma centers, a level one, a level three, and a level four. So I do understand a lot of the different dynamics amongst centers and other institutions. So thanks so much for having me on. Great. Thank you. And Dr. Robinson? Yeah, Dr. Nathan, thank you for having me this afternoon. It's a, it's a real honor and pleasure. Uh, my name is Bryce Robinson. I'm a professor of surgery at the University of Washington. Uh, my trauma practice is at Harborview Medical Center, where I serve as the medical director for critical care. So see a lot of sick patients, a lot of uh, complex patients. Um, I serve right now as the ACS COT chair for the PIPS committee. And specifically for this conversation, the PIPS committee really focuses on the best practice guidelines, which were presented at the last TQIP conference. Great, thank you. And I mentioned I'm the Medical Director of Trauma Quality Programs, but I'm also a trauma surgeon and a trauma medical director at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center in Toronto. So we're just about a month out now from our 13th annual TQIP meeting in Louisville, Kentucky. And I must say uh, the energy at the conference was just remarkable with all sharing their experiences and ideas on how we can do more for our patients. You know, when I left the conference and I was in the Louisville airport, I got so many comments on how special the conference was and how unique it was. What's your sense of, of what makes this different? Why is this conference different, uh, Dr. Rizzo? Well, I've always thought that the TQIP conference was a very different type of conference than other medical conferences that we go to. And to me, one of the things that makes it special is that everyone participates. We have registrars, data analysts, TMDs, TPMs, you name it, EMTs. Anyone that participates in the care of a trauma patient comes. And to me, that gives us such different perspectives on what goes on on the trauma service that I, as a trauma surgeon, might just not even be aware of. Like, 
How do we cover the cost of Lovenox for a patient that doesn't have insurance? And by everybody bringing their best ideas and their best practices, it makes everybody better. And to me, that's one of the special things about the TQIP conference. Well, thanks, Dr. Rizzo. And Dr. Robinson, what's your perspective? Yeah, totally. This is a conference for the entire team. I think that's what makes it so so fun. We bring the whole group. It's not just our trauma surgeons, maybe a, a trauma program manager. No, we, we bring them all. We bring the program manager, registrars, whoever can come, uh, they get to go. And, and when I come there, I come with kind of a list of our problems, our secret problems. And I think of this conference as a place where we figure out how to get unstuck, whether it's practice guidelines or finances or just really doing patient-centered care, this is the conference where you really figure out what others have done that works in an optimal sort of setting. And and for us, it it accelerates the pace of the care that we're delivering and that we can actually implement practices that have worked, worked elsewhere, and the networking to kind of finesse what we learned by reconnecting with the individuals that that bring forth really kind of the best practice, whatever it may be. Yeah, you know, I, I think that the conference is really a reflection of trauma care. Trauma care is a team sport, and the conference is a team event. It does bring together the entire team. I'll tell you what I like about it. You know, we if you go to some of the academic conferences, everyone speaks about, um, you know, their research studies, and uh, it seems that everyone's care is is just perfect. When you go to the TCIP conference, you realize everybody's got common, has similar problems, and everyone is looking for answers. And I think sharing those problems and sharing some creative solutions is something that we all go home with. And uh, that, that's you know really why I really enjoy that conference because I learn so much, and I learn that yeah I've got problems, but other people do too, and we're here to all do better. Um, what would you say some of the highlights of the conference uh, were, uh, Dr. Robinson? You know, I spent a little bit of time hanging out with the registrars just because it's one of those things I, I just don't know very much about. It's a huge part of what we do in terms of data collection, expectation, software utilization. And so for me, it's kind of exploring the things that I just have, a, I know I have an open hole for. Uh, so I really had a good time going to the registrar sessions. Great. Thanks. And Dr. Rizzo? So I went to the Trauma Survivors Network session. And frankly, I felt like I was at a rally. It was amazing to see people get up that are so passionate about what they do and how they make a difference in trauma patients and families' lives that I thought that that was just a fabulous session because it's something I've participated in the past before, you know, just gone and give a talk to the trauma survivors. But to talk to the people that support the network, help stand up the network, help the patients in the network, it was just amazing. Yeah, I must say that that uh, that session, uh, the delivery was almost evangelical. Like it, it really, really touched us all. And I, um, you know, there was a time when we thought about trauma care. It starts when the patient arrives in our trauma bay, and it it ends from our perspective at the time of discharge. And I think over the last number of years, we have focused a lot more on the experience of survivors beyond discharge and how we can better support them. And I think that was an excellent session that speaks to that. I think it was uh, very, very well done and, and very well delivered. I know that our center, um, we are probably going to go ahead and join the Trauma Survivors Network because of, of what they have to offer and, and because I was so impressed with that session. Um, it's funny about the registrars, uh, Dr. Robinson. You know, there was a time 
when the registrars really didn't have a form. So prior to 2010, you know, the registrars worked in their own centers and there was no networking. There was no opportunity to learn and share. And this really put them in the spotlight, which is where data belongs. Like, you know, we're all informed by data. We make care better because of the data we have access to. So they definitely have a very important role in uh, in trauma quality improvement. Um, Dr. Robinson, you're very involved with our best practices guidelines. Why don't you tell us, you know, how those are created, why they're different than the usual guidelines that we read, um, and and what you're thinking of for the future guidelines? Sure. You know, the best practice guidelines from a college are, are uniquely different in that we solicit experts in the field, multidisciplinary experts, but we want them to come to the table, bring the literature, but really to give expert opinion as well. And I think if you look at other societal guidelines, at times we get a little bit lost, and I'm a writer of those too, we get lost in the methodology and really trying to find the perfect evidence to fit into a question that's very formulatic and, and how we progress. Uh, this is different. This is really trying to get people to the table that know what they're talking about, are passionate about getting that information out, and then to write guidelines, not just for level ones with a very large a bank account, but really writing guidelines that help the entire spectrum of care, whether that's one through fives and even our international members. So really a different focus than pure academics. Uh, and we try to find topics where there's controversy. It's easy to find papers that tell us what to do when the when the actual evidence is black and white. We pick evidence, I'm sorry, we pick topics that are a little bit gray so that we do have the experts at the table weighing in, having a really honest conversation. But in the back of their mind, whatever we come up with is a pragmatic approach to care, whether you're at a level one or a level five. And that's really our driving principle. And if I could just piggyback on that. Yes. Um, something that Dr. Robinson has to say is when we do our verification reviews, um, trauma centers will say, well, we don't have a guideline on that. And I open up the guidelines and I say, they're right here. We've worked really hard on this. Please use the data, the expertise that Dr. Robinson has been working on for the past year. Please use that, spread it wide, it will help save lives. So Dr. Robinson, I'd have to say, I, I use your team more than anybody else as an example of how to make a guideline for your hospital and how to overcome any deficiencies you might have. No, it's really, it's really honor to hear that from you. I, I think the people, we work really hard and and it, it it brings really great little pressure to, to feed that back to our writers, because at times we write these, we feel like in a little bit of an isolation. But in reality, when these hit our web page, they're, they're not behind a firewall. Any center can download these at any time. And what we've learned actually recently from our traumatic brain injury guidelines that these are going around the world. And whether we want it or not, they're getting translated into various language and they're getting implemented, which is really at the end of the day, our point. And so very excited to hear your take as well. Yeah, they're written in a very pragmatic way, acknowledging that the goal here is to move all centers just a little bit. And um, they're a great reference source. They also include, and this is this is somewhat recent, uh, Dr. Robinson, a section on performance improvement. So if you're going to put these guidelines into place in your center, how do you PI those guidelines? How do you ensure you're doing what you think you're doing? And I think that's been a nice addition over the last number of years. Well, uh, 
Yeah, huge point. Yeah, I, I thank you, Avery, for bringing that up. I think a lot of us write guidelines, but it's that it's that second piece of okay, it's in print. But what the heck do I do with this thing? And so, really leveraging our nurse partners within the college to read them and to translate them almost formulaically into a and into a into a process where we can apply QIPI. I think it's been a huge addition to our guidelines, especially as we talk about trauma being a team sport. This is a huge part of that. And anything special about the TBI guidelines that were presented at the conference that you might want to highlight? Yeah, I think that's really been a huge force behind uh, behind the scenes now for almost 18 months. It's really trying to get our traumatic brain injury guidelines uh, to, to get published. It's a huge, under, uh, a really large um, process. We have over 50 editors and writers of the guidelines, international, multiple time zones. And, and really taking what we've done in 2015 and updating it. Over the last 10 years, there's been an explosion in guidelines and literature and randomized controlled trials, all in this traumatic brain injury space. And what uh, you know, Jeff Manley, the leader of the guidelines has really done is really to distill these experts that touch traumatic brain injury patients and to write very specific chapters. And you know, over looking over today, I think there's 12 new sections to this guideline compared to 2015 and and really you know using modern literature trying to get consensus on tiered management of ICP what are we going to do with these blood these blood based biomarkers how are they going to fit into our practice and i think what's exciting about this guideline is not just focusing on the severely injured patient but what do we do about concussions and and for pediatric patients with some sort of brain injury so really trying to fill in the gaps where 2015 uh, it was a good start, but I think we're, we're doing better now. Great, thank you. And a uh, question for Dr. Rizzo, you know, you're a reviewer with our verification program, and I think you probably know very well that one of the challenges that many of our centers face is really how to do quality improvement. And to support centers, we had several sessions on quality improvement at the conference. What tips and tricks do you think centers ought to know that, that were presented at the conference that you've seen as part of your role as reviewer, what advice can you give centers? So as Dr. Robinson brought up, you got to start with a guideline, right? Because you can't do improvement if you don't have a guideline to improve to. But to me, it's all a loop, whether you call it an OODA loop or a feedback loop or whatever you want to call it. And that was something that was brought up in multiple discussions at TQIP is you've got your process, are you following the process? Did we monitor this? And we go back and we do it again, meaning that we don't ever walk away from it and say, oh, we fixed that. Let's move on to the next problem. And I think that that was that's something hard, especially for new centers to figure out. Well, everybody gets their Lovenox within 24 hours. We'll go back and look at that again in a year. Is everybody still getting their Lovenox within 24 hours? Has neurosurgery deviated? Has orthopedics started using aspirin and not told you about it? And it's the re-look at it. And as Dr. Robinson said, every time we redo those guidelines, they're better. And they're better because we've advanced the knowledge, the expertise, the data, by looking back at the TQIP data to say, well, you know, maybe that's really not working. How can we make this better? So to me, the big take-home message was constant and continuous. It is not a one and done. It's a continuous loop that we have to continually monitor so that patients don't fall through the cracks. Yeah, uh, Dr. Robinson, anything to add? 
No, you, you summed it up really, really well, Dr. Rizzo. The guidelines should be a playbook, but not every team has the same playbook, right? And so how are you going to take the literature that's out there to fit to your center pragmatically with the resources in hand? And then how are you going to continually evaluate over and over and over that you're meeting your threshold or you're meeting your benchmarks? That's That's the key. Yeah, the guidelines are great for giving you a sense of what you should do not necessarily how best to do it, because how is so specific to your own environment and your own culture and your center. And that's where the QI sessions, I think, came in very handy. Um, Dr. Lillian Cow actually uh, was very effective in leading those sessions. She's developed the ACS Quality Improvement Course, which really provides centers with a framework to do quality improvement. So you might know what you wanna do. This gives you a sense of who needs to be at the table, how do you monitor it? How do you um, uh, do those PDSA cycles that are so important to get you where you want to be? So I, I do want to make a plug for that ACS uh, QI framework, uh, which is also available on the web. There's information available on the ACS QI courses, but that really is um, just you know one additional tool in your toolbox that will help you um, achieve your, your performance improvement goals very e effectively and efficiently. Uh, switching gears a little bit now, um, we always try to profile a trauma survivor at our conference. And I think they have so much to teach us. They teach us about the care we provide, about resilience, about the human spirit. Dr. Rizzo, you had the opportunity to reflect on your experience with Tate this past year. Why not tell us a little bit about that story and how it speaks to what we do for trauma care? So first of all, I have to say thank you because I was very honored to, to share that story. You know, we all have that trauma patient or trauma patients that stick in our heads and, and go with us as we move through the trauma world. But when Dr. Nathan said, hey, we want to look at, you know, resiliency, long-term outcomes, how patients are doing after they've had their trauma, you know, months or years later, I thought, oh, I do have this patient. So Tate was a young boy who I met when he was only 11, and I met him with a knife sticking out of his side. And I honestly, and he had been transported over 30 minutes away by air. So already his chances of survival have decreased significantly, but the trauma team did exactly what they are supposed to do. They acted like a team. He went to the OR, we were able to repair the injury, however very difficult it was, and he had multiple hurdles along the way, from renal failure to a dead colon needing a colostomy and a wound on his leg and not being able to eat enough. And each one of those hurdles that we encountered, the team and his family came together to get past this hurdle. So this year, when he asked me if he could join the military to do special forces with his one remaining kidney and his graft-replaced aorta, I almost had a heart attack, <laughs> as I'm sure his mother did. And I said, why don't you like join the CIA and be an analyst and sit behind a desk or something a little less life-threatening? But that I can get a Christmas card from him every year and a hug now and again when he's in town, that makes everything that we do worth it. 
Yeah, we're we're really touched by by those stories and you know you 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 do what you do every day. We all do this. We all love what we do and we often forget the impact that we have. So I I think seeing these trauma survivors flourish, seeing them years after their 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 event, which is life-changing, um it, it really emphasizes the impact that we have and I think drives us to do better. So I I love the trauma survivor uh, sessions and the stories that they share with us. And I think all the ones that I've seen have been inspirational, not just to me, who does this every day, but everybody in the audience. Like Bryce said, you know, the registrars sometimes don't coordinate with the team as much, or the social workers are over here, or the ICU nurses. And so for those people to get up and say, you know, every single one of you was instrumental in my survival even if you were the registrar taking down my data versus the person registering me when I entered the door. That is a huge boost for our team that deals with so much stress and despair every day. So to me, it's a fabulous session. Yeah, it's funny. We, we do try with every TCIP conference to make sure that we have sessions that I would say touch your heart, i.e. they're inspirational. They maybe draw a tear or two and those that appeal to the analytic side of all of us. And to that end, you know, we had sessions that focused on the C-suite, what we call an executive session, and also another session on um, on the finances behind trauma care, what we call no margin, no mission. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the executive session? That was that was really a full house. People really enjoyed that. Dr. Rizzo, I, I know that uh, you were an active participant in that session. Tell us a little bit about that. So um, thank you for asking because it was a new idea and we were afraid nobody was going to come, but boy, did they come. And it wasn't just the executives who came. It was everybody else that's interested in how to make my trauma center financially viable in this era of decreased resources. And I think by number one, going through what our mission is and how we do things and how a verification raises the bar in your hospital because now we all have to stick to these standards and how, yes, there is a cost, but if you document what you do, you get your coders and your, your billers on board, you can actually have a margin to take care of the next patient. So I think it was, uh, again, an inspirational session, not just for the executives in the room, but everybody else thinking, I'm going to go home and I'm going to take this to my executive and I'm going to show them this is what other people out there are doing. And this is the benefit to my community, which is basically all of our goal as surgeons. We're here to serve our community. And by standing up a trauma center, getting your team on board you are benefiting the community. And trust me, you're gonna get community input. My board meets on a monthly basis and on a quarterly basis, they call me and my team in to talk about the trauma center and how we're doing and what do we need because they realize the support of the community gets them buy-in. And so I thought it was a fabulous session. And as we go forward, I'm sure there's different topics that we can talk about that are of interest to the C-suite about how a trauma center is an integral portion of their hospital and community. Yeah, one of the things we heard a lot about is the halo effect of being a trauma center. So sure, you provide trauma care, but there's other, other things that being a trauma center brings forward, both tangible and intangible. 
Do you want to give us a sense of some of those? Maybe Dr. Robinson first. What does what does the trauma center do beyond trauma care that benefits the community? Yeah, I think the trauma care is oftentimes a gold standard for quality improvement. I, I think the trauma people for decades now have really realized the way to do quality improvement projects and the cycle. And we talked about that previously. And then people can take that sort of mechanism and infrastructure and say, hey, I want to do that, but it's going to be for cardiac or it's going to be for pediatric. What do I need to do? How do I get to that place? And the conversations now that we're having in the state of Washington is that trauma centers have created trauma registries, and now we've created state registries for trauma care. Well, gosh, we really want to do that for stroke care. We really want to do that for time-sensitive cardiology or cardiac care. And so that's what we're looking at at the state of Washington. And all that comes back after you peel back all the layers is what do trauma centers do? And how do they do it within a system? And then how do they leverage the state and state resources to get to that point? And so it's a really exciting time. But like you said, it is a halo effect and people see the benefit of how we do it and really want to expand upon it. Uh, You know, Bryce, that is a great point about the registries. So the Joint Trauma Theater Registry, which we used overseas, came out of this concept of trauma care. And what did we get out of that? We got tons of publications, tons of data, whole blood is better, transfuse early, use your tourniquet. And where did that all come out of? That all came out of trauma verification and keeping track of what happens. The other thing that I think is really important um, coming out of the, the trauma system is resources. Trauma does an amazing job of triaging and managing resources. Now, my whole transfer center uses the protocols, right? It's like a rock over scissors. What person is sicker? Who needs to come first? Which level of hospital do they need to go to? And, you know, again, where do we get that from? We get that from the military and the trauma system. And it's, you know, pushed forward and and perfected with a verification and with a review. And it works across the system. Like you said, not just for the trauma patients, but the stroke, the STEMI, the airway patients, all can then fall into that same paradigm. Yeah, I think there's no question. If if you are a trauma center, you know how to manage time-sensitive conditions. You know how to triage. You can mobilize a team immediately. All those things bring advantages to other patient populations. And, you know, Bryce, you mentioned the data. Uh, I always say data illuminates the way. Everything else is anecdote, right? You can't you can't make any progress without data. And that's why it's, that's why trauma has been so far ahead, I think. Um, now, you know, we, we, we do have a, a, a large focus on level ones and level two centers. And a lot of it is urban trauma care. Uh, Bryce, you work in a state with a phenomenal trauma system that really knows how to move patients around the system and support rural trauma care. Uh, Dr. Rizzo, you know, you're part of a health system, a level threes and fours. You know, what can we do both at the TCUP conference uh, through trauma quality programs to better support rural trauma care? That's probably 47 million Americans and probably 10, 10% of ACS fellows, you know, work in rural environments. How can we better support rural trauma care through our trauma quality programs? Well, with our level three and level four center, it has really showed me that it is very resource intensive. 
And I think the guidelines that we put out are very helpful, but we have to be careful about not overburdening smaller centers with resources that they just don't have. So it's kind of finding baby bears porridge, right? Not too hot, not too cold. We want it just right in the middle. And whether it's partnering with the EMS service or partnering with other services around, my trauma centers do a really good job of communicating amongst each other across state lines. Many of our states don't have that. And so I think a way that we can help is to really push not just state level trauma centers, but a national system so that New York State can talk to Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania can talk to Ohio. Same as you have over in Washington state, we even talked to Canada. Oh my God, what a concept. And so by setting up these trauma centers, especially in these more rural areas, it really pushes us to that national level centers where everybody can talk to everybody and get the help they need. And I, I hope that we use the level threes and fours to push that forward. But again, we don't wanna overburden them with stuff they can't do, but give them a resource to help them. Over to you, Bryce. Yeah, I think one of the things that college has really been working hard, especially the COT, is really finding passionate rural trauma individuals and injecting them in our committees. I, I know for our best practice guidelines, we definitely want to have a multidisciplinary team, nurses, doctors, RTs, whatever it takes, but we also want rural members as part of that team. Well, we can write a guideline that's very, very comprehensive, but the reality is you're at a level three and level four, much of it's not going to apply. It's nice to know it's there. It's nice to understand what's going to happen next, but we do need to write these guidelines with a voice for these centers. Uh, the COT has worked really hard to create this rural trauma so that it then leverages these individuals. So as we make guidelines, not just academic guidelines, but just you know system level guidelines, that these people are, are speaking up and participating. And I think you alluded to it at better, Dr. Rizzo is at the, the college and the COT is really working hard with Congress to get to have a national trauma system, a preparedness system, and to really have that be functioning and appropriate and active, you're, you're gonna have to have rural trauma providers. That's that's 85% of my state, I'm sure it's the same elsewhere. Uh, to make a true system work, they have to be at the table. Yeah. So it's interesting. The level three centers really never had a forum where they can get together and network. Um, that is until we created the level three sessions at the TQIP meeting, right? like seeing level three trauma program managers and the medical directors all in one place. Um, you know, granted, they're typically isolated, working alone. Maybe they're working with their level ones and twos. That, that was their first opportunity to get together and share problems and solutions. And we learned from that. I think we're learning how to create standards that are more relevant to those centers, uh, to create educational materials that speak to their needs. So I, I think this is, this is a, becoming a larger focus for our trauma quality programs and also our trauma education programs to really address some of those gaps that uh, we've really been blind to up until more recently. I also wanna emphasize that, um, you know, acknowledging it's difficult for many clinicians to be able to leave their communities, um, all of the sessions, for this year's meeting are gonna be available, um, uh, I think in short order, uh, if you just keep checking the website, you'll be able to see when they'll be available, but they're gonna be available as virtual sessions and audio and, and so on. So I wanna emphasize that to the listeners. Uh, that's probably the best way to keep the rural folks in, engaged because we're bringing the material to them. 
So the statewide consortiums are another thing that I've seen help the rural providers because the statewide consortiums get grounded when, you know, a level three says, well, we don't have a neurosurgeon within two hours. So how are we going to do this? So I, I found by sitting in on a few of those consortium sessions that that was a really good conglomeration, as you said, of bring the level threes voices to the table as well. Great. So we're turning our mind to 2024 in Denver. And I think we're going to have uh, rural care as uh, a focus. We'll probably better understand how to use telehealth because that might be a way to bring specialists to those centers who otherwise are, are quite remote. We're thinking about topics that focus on communication and crisis resource management and a number of other sessions that uh, are really to be determined, but we're excited about what's what's to come in Denver in uh, 24. And I, um, I'm just looking for any final comments from Anne or Bryce. Go ahead, Bryce. No, 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 please. <laughs> I would just like to say thank you for having us on and letting us talk about, frankly, my favorite meeting, because as Bryce said, it's a team meeting and that's what adds to the fun because you all learn together, you bring your problems and somebody else has got the same problem and you work on it together. So thanks again for letting us talk. Yeah. Thanks, no, Dr. Rizzo. No, I think I'm really looking forward to 2024 for best practices. We're going to have our uh, genital urinary guideline cross your fingers will be done uh, before then. And so there cross my fingers. We'll have another session. Uh, where we'll talk about that guideline. And much like the rural care we just spoke about, this is a very organ-specific guideline, leveraging real experts about specific injury patterns, specific organ injury patterns. And so uh, telehealth and all those things are part of this guideline, realizing that a lot of centers don't have these types of resources. Great, great discussion. And I want to thank all the listeners and uh, wishing uh, you all well over the next year. We'll see you at the TCRIP conference in Denver, Colorado, November 12th to 14th. And thank you both and a great, great discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery podcast, brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag House of Surgery. You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services at facs.org.